Looking to recharge your prayer life this year? Jesus Listens is a new 365-day prayer devotional from Sarah Young. Available now at JesusCalling.com slash Jesus Listens. God is everywhere. He is always up to something. His goodness cannot be explained. It certainly can't be deserved. And you cannot predict it. So you should just live in a way that assumes that he knows exactly what he's doing, that he's for your life, and that you would pray for exactly what he's going to do if you knew all that he did. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Do you struggle with how to fit a faith routine into your life? It's hard to prioritize time for prayer and reflection in our busy, overscheduled lives. But when we come up against those moments that stretch us beyond our normal limits and make us question the very foundation of our faith, turning to that connection that we have already been establishing day by day to God can be crucial for us to lean on when nothing else makes sense. Author and podcaster Clear Cherry Reeves clung hard to her relationship with God when her son Sledge, who was born three months premature, fought for his life. Author Larry Loftus shares about the incredible bond Corey Ten Boom had with God and how she bravely trusted his guidance to do what was right as she helped hide Jewish people in her home who were fleeing Nazi oppression during World War II. The relationship these women built daily with God informed their responses to heartache and tragedy. Let's hear Clear's story first. Hello, my name is Clear Cherry Reeves, and I am from Greenville, North Carolina. I am an author, a podcaster, a speaker. I own a company brand called Clearly Stated. Also a mother, recently became a mother in July 2021, wife, daughter. Growing up, I I thought I wanted to be a news reporter and then in college did a few internships and realized that my heart was really to sit with people and their stories and understand where their heart was at and speak to that and maybe less about the research. And I had a kind of a glamorous view of that. But growing up, I grew up in a household that certainly prioritized scripture My mom owned a Christian gift company, so it was always front and center. And through that, you know, really developed a personal relationship with the Lord. But I feel like it was probably in high school and certainly in college where it became personal. It became where it was no longer what I knew was good for me, but Jesus really became my best friend. My son Sledge was born three months early, so he graced the world a little bit ahead of schedule. And when he was born, he weighed one pound, 12 ounces. I was 26 weeks pregnant and headed in for my glucose screening that Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and immediately was rushed to the hospital. Sledge Reeves made his appearance into the world. Um, They told us based on the ultrasound before he was born that he was going to have fluid all around his organs and his brain and that just things were very dismal. When he was born, that was not the case at all. God had already worked a million miracles on our behalf and on his behalf of his life. And he was born successfully intubated and we were in the hospital for almost five months. We originally came home on oxygen. He had a few apneic episodes, and so we went back to the hospital. And it was quite a journey. 
you know, throughout that time, it's one thing, like I said, to talk about depending on God, but it's another when truly every single day, I think you learn how to hold the grief of knowing your child's fighting for their life every day with the joy that your child is fighting for their life every day. And he's crushing it and so strong and receiving God's care and nourishment. And the nurses were amazing. And just seeing all these miracles, but knowing that you could feel the weight and the intensity of the experience and the season that you're in while still being a faithful mother and a faithful wife and a faithful friend and a faithful daughter and all of these roles and do it well and just receive that grace. I feel like when we were in the hospital before Sledge came home and that daily experience, I felt like the veil between heaven and earth was like thinner than a sheet. Like it was like so obvious to me that God's presence is the miracle, that so many things we pray for and, and they're worthy prayers, you know, the desires of our hearts and the things we yearn for and the gifts that we have and all of that. Like God, God gave us those, you know, with good reason and perseverance to push through and go after those and pray and and show up and all of that. But really journeying with him. You know, that was such a time in my husband, Will, both of our lives that we really understood what faith was about. I think it's, I think we thought we really depended on the Lord, but when it's the person, the treasure you love the most in the entire world, when it's your child, you operate differently. And so we were able to really see miracles all over the place in the hospital. You know, I think we had, or at least I did, had a perception of what a hospital is and what sickness and struggle and all of that. And the Lord really transformed our perspective. I think we stopped dreading our reality because we learned, you know, we're going to be here for a minute. This is not going to be a short journey. And we learned how to walk through waves that once felt like tsunamis. We learned how to operate and say, Lord, this is not our preference. We would love to take him home, but we know that your ways are higher your plan is greater, and you are working miracles all around us. Help us see those miracles. I continuously told Sledge, I'm never going to let you forget the miracle of you. No matter what you do, no matter what you achieve, no matter what you accomplish, no matter the distractions that surround us, you know, as you grow tall and strong and we get out of here, the greatest miracle is the miracle of you, of your life. You know, really understanding that life really is a gift. It's pure grace. And I think when we operate from that, we really can fight for contentment in any circumstance. You know, miracles are not always water into wine, you know, or the healing that we had expected. Miracles are a million different things in a million different ways. And I think the more that we look out for them, the more that we voice them, the more that we recognize them, the more that we make our conversations about them, the more that we become people who see him working, you know? And I think when we're people of gratitude, I mean, as believers, I think that's our responsibility because if our lives, if people hear a heart and not that we can't have grievances, that's certainly allowed and the Lord wants us to have emotions, but understanding just the grace that we've been given and to really fight for a life 
that operates in contentment and peace that isn't based on what's happening in the world or what's happening to us, but peace that says, I know my home and I know who's in control and I know that he's with me and I know that he's equipped me for right here, right now. And so despite all of that, I know that good is happening here because God is here. One thing that my husband always says about our journey with Sledge is that he feels like throughout our journey, it was the power of prayer and God's army became like a literally a transportation vehicle. Like it would literally carry us. And when we felt like we didn't have the energy or we were struggling or whatever our situation was, it was literally the fortitude that we needed to get to the next place. And we felt it, I mean, from a very physical standpoint. And so I mean, we saw the power of prayer worked out in very specific ways. I really believe in the power of prayer and walking that out in real time. So I'm excited. I know God's at work. So who knows what he's up to? Jesus Listens, January 30th. Mighty Jesus, all things are possible with you. These powerful words from scripture light up my mind and encourage my heart. You are training me to live by faith not by sight. So I refuse to be intimidated by the way things look at this moment. Teach me how to grow closer to you, Lord Jesus. I delight in knowing you as my savior and friend, but I want to relate to you also as almighty God. When you lived as a man in this world, your miraculous signs revealed your glory. I know that you continue to do miracles according to your will and purposes. Please train me to align my will with yours and to watch and hope for you to work. In your powerful name, amen. To learn more about Clear, follow her on social media and be sure to check out her new book, The Miracle of You, at your favorite retailer. Stay tuned to Larry Loftus after a brief message. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Our next guest is Larry Loftus, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and international best-selling author of The Watchmaker's Daughter, the first major biography on Corrie ten Boom, who saved the lives of hundreds of Jews during World War II. Larry recounts Corrie's story and some of the surprising discoveries he made during his research, and shares also the lasting impression of her selfless service, her steadfast faith, and forgiveness of those who wronged not only her, but her country and her people. Corey came from a very devout family, Christian family, dating back to her great-grandfather, 
So that lineage, their love for the Jews, their love for Jerusalem, praying for Jerusalem, that goes all the way back to her great-grandfather. And then we end up with Casper, who is her father. Cor, Corey's mother, had died many years earlier. So by the time we get to World War II, Casper is turning 80 and Corey is turning 50. Betsy, I think, was about 54, 56 around that time. So they're in this devout family, and Casper's a watchmaker. He was probably, well, he was definitely the best in the Netherlands, the best watchmaker in the Netherlands, and possibly the world. So you have this very godly family. As the war breaks out, just watchmakers, their home, the bottom floor was their watch shop, and then above that, the two floors above were their residential quarters. Casper would open the day with Bible study. They would pray before every meal. He would typically read a psalm before or after every meal. Then they'd pray again at night. So this was Corey's normal day was just uh, prayer and and Bible study. And so when the war breaks out, this is where the rubber hits the road. They had to decide, are we going to help our neighbors? So they did. The Germans were after two groups of people, the Nazis were, the Jews, of course, but also Dutch boys. If you were between the age of, say, 16 to about 35, they would just, the Gestapo would just snatch you off the street and send you off to Germany to work in a German factory because all of their prior factory workers were now in the military. So if you're a Dutch boy, you had to hide. So the first permanent refugee into the Bay as a boy, an 18-year-old university student named Hans Poli, and he was the one that got them involved in the resistance. It brought danger to Corey, brought danger to everyone in the Ten Boom home, because if you're caught, it's not, you know, a slap on the wrist. They're going to send you, at best, to a prison, and if not a prison, to a concentration camp and possibly shot. Then he was kind of worried that Corey would say, well, then you're going to have to find another home. We can't let you stay here. But instead, she she said just the opposite. Great. I want to be involved. How can we help? Use the Bay A as your headquarters. And so that's how it all started. So then Corey said, well, look, I know someone who might be able to help us. He comes by. They send an architect. Next thing you know, they've built this great hiding place in the back of Corey's room. So on any given day, on any given night in their home, they, they might have three Jews and three divers, or as many as nine, which made it a little, actually they they had about 12, I think at most on one night. The dangers were ever present. If you were hiding Dutch boys or Jews, so on any given day, you had to be careful, just the knock at the door or a German comes in pretending to buy a watch or something. You have to wonder, is this a Gestapo agent? One day at lunch, they're sitting around a dining table and there were a number of Dutch divers and Jews and resistance workers all eating lunch with the Ten Bones. One of the Dutch resistance guys blurts out, everybody go on as normal, but there's a man peering through the window. Now that was startling because the dining room was on the second floor. And so Nils was the guy's name and he says, he's washing the windows And Betsy says, well, I didn't order the windows washed. And then somebody else says, there's no ledge on the second floor. Where's he standing? And then Nils just kind of looks back over and he goes, he's standing on a ladder. And this man outside 
peers through the curtain and kind of waves. And so they know this either has to be an informant or a Gestapo agent. Who else could it be? So you see one of the Jews that was in the room at the dining table said, okay, look, everybody just go on calmly. In a few minutes, we'll sing happy birthday. And so that's what they did. They just all started singing happy birthday. But it was very scary. And, and those kind of things happened every day. Willem, who was married and had his own home, was hiding uh, typically one Jew at a time. He had a small place in his study and a Gestapo agent shows up just to check around and the Jew hides in that study, hides in that little basement. And before the Gestapo agent starts snooping around, Willem, who is a very impressive guy with a lot of gravitas, he just blisters the German about disrupting his study time. And the German, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dr. Ten Boom. And so Willem essentially runs him out of the house. That, so that kind of danger hit everybody basically every day for five years. When we think of people that have to go through things like this, we think of, well, they're superhuman. But these were regular people. And what's inspiring is that you have these normal people that rise to the occasion. They eventually start helping with ration cards. The Jews had no rations cards, so they had no way to get food. And Dutch homes barely had enough to eat themselves. So it was a real problem. So they started stealing ration cards by the hundreds. And then Corey was involved in the distribution of those ration cards. The big picture is the Gestapo's relentless. When they find a witness, when they arrest anybody, they ask them, where, where did you come from? Who are you friends with? Who did you talk to yesterday? If you're really involved, you're gonna to be tortured. And then you give up names. And so they just start tracing those names and they go to those people and they, and then they do the same to them. So eventually that happens to Corey's family. They are betrayed by another Dutchman, which was the worst scenario of all because this man had thrown his lot with the Nazis thinking they were gonna win the war. And to be betrayed by one of your own countrymen is just unthinkable. So they're all arrested. They all go to prison and concentration camps. It's just horrible. And Betsy dies in concentration camp. Her father dies before they get to the concentration camp. Willem dies from tuberculosis that he gets in his concentration camp. Corey is supposed to be executed. And so near the end of Corey's stay, this is uh, in late November, early December, 44, they decide that, okay, the next group to be executed will be all women over 50. Well, that's Corey's group. So she's supposed to die. And in fact, they do carry this out. All women over 50 were executed except for Corey. Lots of people hid Jews in the Netherlands. So she's not unique in that sense. And she's not unique in that she suffered. Where she's unique is this. Corey forgave everybody. First, she forgave the Germans, which she did not want to do because when they were in Ravensbrück, Betsy had said, Corey, we need to come back and help the Germans. They're the most hurt of all people. There's 9 million that are homeless. 
they're crushed. We need to help them. Her heart softens. And so she knows, look, the Lord forgave me. I have to forgive them. So she forgives the Germans. Then she has to forgive the guards at Ravensbrook. And then finally, she has to forgive the worst one of all, which was the Dutchman who betrayed them. The man that was responsible for sending her family to, to concentration camps, which killed her father, her sister, her nephew, and her brother. All because of this one man. And she forgives him. She was part Mother Teresa in that she would go to places just to help people. For example, she starts a home in Harlem where they could house Dutch people who had been injured by the war, not necessarily physically injured, but emotionally damaged, destroyed. The, the, the husband had been killed in the war. The brothers had been killed in the war. Maybe they had been betrayed by their next door neighbor. They had all these emotional hurts. And so they opened this house and Corey ran it. She opens the Bay A up to help the most notorious group of all, those who had helped the Germans, who nobody wanted any part of. And so she put them in her own home and let them heal. But then her ministry expands because a gentleman shows up one day and says, Corey, we found this place that was a former concentration camp. It was at Darmstadt. It was the Darmstadt concentration camp. We have a place that we think you might be able to turn into a center like you had done in the Netherlands. And so they turned this former concentration camp with all the barbed wire and all that that was still there. And Corey turns it into a home of healing. So then after that, she goes to the U.S. and then she travels the world sharing the gospel, sharing her message of peace and forgiveness and what had happened to her and her family and how the answer was in Christ. And he will give you the strength to forgive as, you, as he's done for me and my family. So she spends the rest of her life traveling the world. She hits about 66 countries, including going to a leper colony. Corey is unique in that she was able to forgive the hardest people to forgive. People who were cruel to you, people who betrayed you, people who were responsible for the death of your family. Corey realizes that I can't do it on my own, but with God's grace and God's help, I can do it. The big takeaway, because we're all called, you know, with the Great Commission to share the gospel, but Corey gives us a firsthand example of how to forgive and forgive people who have really deeply hurt us. And that's hard to do. It might be a family member. It might be a spouse. It might be an employer or a former partner. And people that have hurt us deeply that we find almost impossible to forgive, we can look at what Corey did to forgive the, the hardest people in the world to forgive what she did and use that as our inspiration that, yes, you know, with that example and with God's grace, we can forgive too. Corey's entire family history was of that kind of devotion. They were people of prayer. And, you know, God calls us to pray. And the prayer of a righteous man is effective and powerful. That we're called to do that. And the takeaway with Corey's book or, or you know, with uh, devotions like Jesus Calling and so forth, the takeaway is that, A, God calls us to do that. He decides which prayers to answer, which ones to say yes to. He hears them all, but which ones to say yes to, which ones to say no to. But that's our job is to pray. It's a beautiful story and it's a great inspiration for us. To learn more about Larry and his books, please visit LarryLoftus.com. 
You can find The Watchmaker's Daughter wherever you buy books. If you'd like to hear more stories about finding peace in times of turmoil, check out our interview with Cam Ayala. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we'll hear from iconic pop and gospel singer Dionne Warwick and her son Damon, who share about her historical career and how she trusted God every step of the way. You know, all the things that he does for me, I am truly thankful and grateful for. And he's given me a path to follow and a plan he has for me. And I'm following that plan and that path. So whatever comes within the the realm of that, I'm supposed to face. I had no problem with that. Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.